images of a Gaza City hospital where the Hamas-run health ministry says hundreds have been killed. Hamas blames an Israeli airstrike. Israel's military denies involvement. Victims seen rushed to a different hospital for help where covered bodies were already seen lined up outside. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk again about the war in Gaza, Israel's objectives, the human toll, and the risk the war escalates. We just heard about the explosion in a Gaza hospital this week, which, according to the health authorities in the Strip, killed hundreds of Gazans, mostly civilians. They blamed an Israeli airstrike. Israel said a Palestinian rocket misfire caused the blast. Gaza, which has been blockaded by Israel since 2006, has been under heavy Israeli bombardment for the past almost two weeks. That's in response to an attack on the 7th of October by Hamas and other Palestinian militants, an attack that killed some 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians. Israeli bombing since then has killed maybe 4,000 Gazans, again mostly civilians, hundreds of children among them. Life in Gaza is increasingly desperate, with shortages of food, water and medical supplies. U.S. President Joe Biden visited Israel just after the blast. Some days before going, he'd put out this warning. My message to any state or any other hostile actor, thinking about attacking Israel remains the same as it was a week ago. Don't. 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 In Tel Aviv, Biden again offered strong support for Israel. He also expressed sorrow about Palestinians dying in Gaza and appeared to ask questions about what Israel hoped to get out of its bombardment. I'm the first U.S. president to visit Israel in time of war. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. There's always cost. It requires being deliberate. It requires asking very hard questions. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. The vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. So what are Israel's objectives in Gaza? How realistic are they? What toll will Gazans pay? What danger is there that the war escalates? We're going to do this episode in three parts. Later, I'm going to talk to our Palestine expert, Tahani Mustafa, about worsening violence in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. I'll also talk to Heiko Women, our Iraq, Lebanon and Syria director, about the risk that the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah gets involved and opens another front in Israel's north. Before that, though, I'm happy to welcome on Myra of Sunshine, our Israel expert, and Rob Bletcher, who is now Crisis Group's Future of Conflict director, but for years was Israel-Palestine director. And we'll talk a bit about the mood in Israel and the US and Israel and Hamas's objectives in Gaza. Myra, Rob, welcome on. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. So, Myra, we'll talk about Biden's trip in a moment, but before we do, since we spoke last week, there's been a lot more information coming out about the 7th of October attacks, a lot more really gruesome details about what happened. How's that contributed to the sense of shock and, and anger in Israel? Well, on the one hand, we're seeing still bodies being discovered um, and the bodies that were uh, found already being identified still. There's so many bodies that uh, they haven't been able to identify because either they've been burned or they haven't found them yet. And then there's been rescue workers who have gone on uh, record saying that they've seen signs of torture, which is something that I saw for the first time, I believe, yesterday. It was not something I was aware of. Um, and also descriptions by various journalists of the kinds of positions that families were found in when they were killed, like hugging each other, hovering over their children, just all kinds of really uh, horrible scenes. 
the gravity of it is just that it's still unfolding. Uh, at the same time, though, this war, it's only been 12 days, but it feels like, I think, for Israelis, years already, um, just in terms of the combination of, of confusion about what's going to happen next and the fight now over the narrative uh, since the hospital bombing. So, you know, a lot of the kind of efforts and focus now is on how are we going to continue to keep public opinion, uh, especially Western, you know, opinion on our side. And at the same time, there's, you know, rocket sirens in the South and in the North every day. And yet there's people who are sitting in cafes and kind of acting as if everything's normal. So it's a very weird mix of a lot of different things. Though, generally speaking, beyond the pain and the and the trauma, there must be a lot of anger toward, talk about how people feel towards the Israeli government, Netanyahu's government in a moment, but there must be a lot of anger toward Hamas, maybe towards the Palestinians more broadly, and a general sense that something has to be done to try to stop something like this happening again. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a game-changing moment, and nobody thinks that it can go back to the the same kind of mowing the grass kind of status quo. And uh, by mowing the lawn, mowing the grass, um, I mean, this is the expression that Israelis have used uh, sort of in Israeli policy for some time, that every once in a while they kill Hamas operatives, Hamas leaders, take out some of its infrastructure in a way of sort of containing it and reducing its capability to strike at Israel. And the general consensus now in Israel is that that's not going to be enough this time around. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there's consensus on that. There's a very small minority, I think, that wants there to be some kind of diplomacy and ceasefire and some kind of path towards a solution. And then I think probably the majority, which wants um, Hamas completely wiped out. They're calling them Nazis. They're just there's so much kind of this is an existential war. Uh, You know, we cannot coexist with people like that on our border. So I think that's the driving force. And even very, you know, kind of sober, moderate military analysts that I uh, spoke, have spoken to, you know, see this not only as a war against Hamas, but a a regional issue where, you know, the fact that the North now is also kind of um, a threat has made many Israelis say this is the time to deal with the whole the whole thing, the whole axis. Some are calling for preemptive strikes on Hezbollah. Some are talking about how even when Hamas is done with, we're going to have to deal with the rest of them. And so a lot of people feel like this is only the beginning of a chain of events that will kind of change the whole the way the whole region functions. And what did people make of U.S. President Joe Biden's visit to Tel Aviv? So, I mean, that that was like grandpa came home to comfort all of us. I mean, Israelis love Biden and they actually feel like he is providing the basic kind of empathy and national sentiment that Netanyahu is incapable of providing. And truly, it is an unprecedented moment for a a U.S. president to come during wartime. So it's a moment where most Israelis and especially the Israelis who have always said that Biden is a very pro-Israel president coming out and telling the right wing, what the hell were you thinking when you talked about Biden so badly? Because look at what he's doing now. The thing is that the what actually happened behind closed doors, you know, what he told Netanyahu, unclear, because there were reports here that Biden said that the U.S. would join in with Israel to defend itself against uh, a front in the north. And the minute that he left, he told the press that he never said anything like that. So, you know, I think Israelis felt very comforted and safe by the fact that the U.S. had brought these uh, carriers and that it would stand by if there was another front opened. But now it's not really clear how the U.S. would position itself if the situation were to escalate. And there were some reports also that you know Biden, obviously, very strong expressions of support for Israel. Also, in a much more subtle way, some questions about 
Israel having to think through what it was hoping to achieve with its operation in Gaza, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But on the idea that, that this is a moment of sea change in the region, presumably for Israel, another front in its north right now is not something that military leaders want. Yeah, they absolutely are doing everything possible, I think, to de-escalate and to send the signal that they're not interested because there's been fire uh, every day. They're trying to contain it and they're very clearly focused on the south. And I, I think, you know, there is no appetite for that. And uh, they continue to say that Israel is capable of dealing with two fronts, of course, but that's certainly not something they want. There's also the West Bank to think about as well. And there's also the, the Arab street. So there's a lot that they have to consider. And I think um, even the most hawkish in the military or political echelon right now understand that they want to keep the North quiet. Because I think one big question now is, while for Israel, the, the rules of the game have changed, I think there is a question from the U.S. side. One thing that has not changed is that the U.S. Uh, typically hugs Israel after it suffers some kind of tragedy um, and responds militarily with the intention of quiet diplomacy behind doors. And we can sort of argue whether that's the right strategy. We can argue whether it does enough. But I think it's pretty clear that over time that that has been the strategy. And that does seem to be, again, the same strategy uh, that it's using now. In the early days after the attack, extremely um, strong support. But you can hear behind closed doors, some questions being asked. And I think especially as the danger in other theaters heats up, um, Lebanon has been the big one so far. Uh, yesterday, though, there were some events in Iraq with attacks from uh, Iranian-linked militias. Um, you know, for, for Israel, this feels like an existential event where the um, where deterrence, which is, you know, sort of the, the, the fundamental of the, of the state's military strategy and the personal safety, not just national security, of, of of Israelis where, where that was threatened. You know, for, for the for the US that was not threatened, right? Like for the US an, an ally was threatened. For the US, um, for US politicians, um, a political ally that has a lot of domestic support in their home country, the United States, was threatened. For Israel, though, they need to change the rules of the game and have a, you know, sort of all-encompassing campaign now to restore their status. Um, the U.S., is the U.S. going to want to see this spiral into something where the U.S. gets dragged in in Lebanon? What happens in Iraq? What happens in the West Bank? Um, if Israelis, like Meirav said, are thinking, this is the time to deal with the whole thing, you know, um, there's got to be some people in D.C. thinking, really? Like, this is the time that we're going to get into another war and remake the Middle East along the lines that Mayrav was laying out. Like that's, you know, I think there's, there's, you know, right now there's an imperative to stand with Israel, but I can imagine that there's a lot of divergence in the background. And we'll talk in a moment about how much the hospital blast changes people's calculations in Israel, in, in, in the US. But earlier this week, Israel laid out objectives for its military campaign. It took about a week to do so after it had declared war. But the four objectives that it laid out are what the clearest articulation yet of what it wants to achieve in Gaza. Do you want to talk a bit about those objectives? So Israel's laid out four objectives, toppling Hamas and destroying its military capabilities. Number two, eliminating the threat of terrorism emanating from the Strip. Number three, exerting maximal effort to find a solution to the hostage issue. And number four, defending the state's borders and citizens. So these are all aims that I think uh, Israel is dedicated to achieving and the U.S. has given it backing to do so. All I know is that Israeli officials have said that it's going to take a very long time. Some unnamed officials have said it could take years. I don't know if they're able to achieve this, but I think that this is 
clearly, you know, what they've set out to do. So Israel's laid out those four uh, objectives. Those are the four official objectives. The one that has gotten the most conversation is destroying Hamas's military capacity and toppling its government. Uh, That is a very far-reaching objective in and of itself. Uh, You're talking about a force that is deeply dug in uh, with deep roots in Gaza that has prepared for this moment for years arguably carried out the horrible operation in Israel in order to provoke this moment. And therefore, um, Israel does not have the advantage of surprise. You can see how just doing this would take you know a long time, months, years. Uh, I think there's a big question about whether Israel even has a, a fraction of that time, given how things have been going so far. But I think it's also important to note that those official objectives are not the way that Israeli officials tend to talk in public about what they're going to do. Um, What we hear in public is we are going to destroy Hamas, Uh, not destroy Hamas's military movement, destroy Hamas. So even if Israeli officials are talking about destroying the military movement, um, Palestinians are going to hear destroying the the political movement and party, when Israeli officials talk about it, they might um, not even know that there are um, so many card-carrying members of the movement, but Palestinians certainly do. And when Netanyahu says every member of Hamas is a dead man walking, that is the kind of statement which doesn't really give anybody in Gaza any reason um, to do anything except fight this to the end. Yeah, I think there may have been some sort of clarification after uh, Netanyahu said that every Hamas member is a dead man, that, that that actually he meant every military member. But of course, even if there was, it's not clear that everyone in Gaza heard that clarification. So as we heard up top, northern Gaza has come under incredibly heavy bombardment over the past few days. I mean, the stats on the number of airstrikes, the bo- number of bombs are phenomenal. Um, I think as this goes out, something between three and 4,000 Gazans, most of them civilians, many children uh, killed. Even in the south, uh, people remember that we talked last week to my colleague in Gaza, uh, who is now actually in the southern city of Khan Yunis. He was among the many Gazans who left from the north of the Strip to the south. He reported last night big strikes there overnight too. So north getting pummeled, you know, a lot of it reduced, a lot of Gaza City, you know, entire blocks, it seems reduced to rubble, but also bombing in the south. So we know about the bombardment so far already, but do we know anything about sort of how Israeli military planners see that as related to a ground operation, what a ground operation might look like, and sort of how it would try to meet the objectives? I think it's a little too early to tell, and I don't think people really understand or know, because maybe Israel itself doesn't, the leaders don't know. This ground invasion has been uh, postponed several times now. Nobody knows if and when it's going to happen. The reservists that were called up in the hundreds of thousands, some of them are already being released back home, being told, you need to be on, you know, on call, but we don't need you this moment. But to me, from what I can tell and from what I've spoken to some people who understand more than me about it is that they're trying to get to Gaza City, I think, where a lot of Hamas um, power structure is. And they're going to have to somehow, you know, they're bombing it now and they're going to want to cordon it off and they're going to have to get as much intelligence as they possibly can, which I think is much more challenging there than, let's say, it was in the West Bank and during the response to the Second Intifada when it really went in and destroyed the PA's infrastructure. I think that's going to be a similar model, maybe, to what they're going to try to do. Um, And it's going to depend a lot on intelligence and on their ability to get underground. And that's also where the hostages, you know, presumably are. So they're going to have to somehow both destroy the underground 
Hamas infrastructure while trying to get the hostages out. You know, so it's a very tall order, but it seems like the focus now is going to be on the Gaza City area, from what I can tell. Rob, do you want to come in on that? Well, as the old saying goes, no strategy survives the first encounter with the enemy. But yeah, there are a few things that seem pretty certain. Uh, Israel will try to destroy as much of Hamas's military infrastructure and kill as many militants as it can. That means all command and control systems, of course, military and security installations, both those belonging to the movement and to the government, Uh, certainly all tunnels, all weapons, all weapon production facilities. Then you have the question of the Hamas military forces themselves. Israel will probably try to kill and, in fact, probably will kill a a good deal of the regular rank and file Qassam members, the the members of of the military wing. Israel will certainly hunt down the political and military leadership. I guess one question that will influence Israeli strategy is how Hamas handles the fight. Do they throw everything they can at the start in order to inflict maximum losses quickly, both in order to better serve them in the PR battle and also for fear that if they don't use them quickly, they won't have them later or do they save part of their reserves because the military wing has has reserves? And do they keep them hidden um, or have them melt into the civilian population? And especially given all the chaos, it might be hard to find them. Um, and if they melt in, they could then reemerge later in classic guerrilla style. So that's one thing that Israel will have to adjust to. Um, the other is the regional temperature. Uh, Lebanon, the West Bank, Jordan, Iraq. Over the last few days, um, those have all been a bit hot. Also, other places in the Arab world have seen protest. Uh, it seems like the U.S. has given Israel a pretty long leash for now, but that leash could tighten up quickly if it really looks like the region might explode. So based on everything we've seen so far, it certainly seems that Israel plans to start out in the north and center, particularly Gaza City, where Hamas has been quite active. Uh, Egypt and the U.S. for the time being have taken relocating Gazans to Egypt off the board. So it's a bit hard to see how Israel extends the same kind of campaign it wants to run in the north to the south. Right now, it seems more likely that Israel will establish a buffer zone within Gaza on the north and you know maybe on the west side also to make sure that there isn't a repeat of October 7th. I guess the big question beyond the military operation, the cost it's going to exact, what it's going to achieve is sort of what comes next. And in particular, who is going to govern Gaza? Everything that Israel says suggests that it can't let Hamas back in. And in fact, it's not clear that Hamas itself wants to rule again. But there aren't obvious alternatives. Do you get the sense that there's been much thought yet to, to sort of what's going to come next? Yeah, it seems like there's an agreement to not talk about it, to uh, deal with this on the, the, the day after. The Israeli officials are not talking about it. U.S. officials are, everyone's saying the same thing, that we'll, deal, that we'll deal with this later. Even if they are talking about it, it's very uh, difficult to see 
what kind of plausible options there are. The PA coming back, riding on Israeli tanks, in effect, um, doesn't seem like something that they would do, doesn't seem like something Gazans would accept. And I think also you'd have to ask questions about whether that's what Israel wants to do after spending so many years and so much effort trying to separate the West Bank from Gaza um, for both security and political reasons to reunite the two territories would seem to run counter to Israelis uh, to Israel's long-term strategy. Other ideas are international trusteeship. Uh, Israel has never uh, been willing to let outsiders be responsible for its security, and I certainly don't ma- imagine that Gaza is the place that they would start. Um, you could have some kind of local leadership emerge, like uh, the uh, collaborationist village leagues were set up um, by Israel in the 1970s in the West Bank. But every one of these ideas is just a bad idea. And I think that g- given that it's unlikely that Israel will achieve its military goal of wiping out the military wing to say nothing of Hamas as a political movement. Nobody knows what's going to happen, but it it does um, seem that Israel will have to deal with Hamas in some form in Gaza afterwards. I want to talk in a moment about prospects for a ceasefire, something that Crisis Group has called for this week. But Myra, first, are there voices? And if so, sort of how loud are they calling for an alternative to the military campaign? And if so, what does it look like? Some Israelis do say like a, a military operation can only be as effective as its political outcome afterwards, as its leverage for some kind of political path. So, you know, in this case, diplomacy could work on some levels regarding release of hostages and some of the conditions that Israel may lay for a future Gaza Strip and what it would look like. But it's pretty clear that regardless of what we think, the military aspect is going to continue and both sides are going to keep firing. I think the question is how we can leverage whatever is left of that uh, for diplomacy. And the bigger concept here is that what what clearly broke on October 7th is the notion that Israel can continue to sideline the Palestinian issue and can continue to build up its might. And it has a lot of might, diplomatic, economic, military, that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to protect it. Um, So hopefully that can be somehow crafted into something in which Israel is both able to restore security and feel safe but that it will also have to make concessions. And that even though Hamas has done horrible, horrible things, the political aspect of uh, calling for an end to occupation and an end to hostilities in Jerusalem and undermining of the status quo and all those things that Palestinians talk about are things that Israel is going to have to address. So Crisis Group this week, as obviously you both know, called for a ceasefire. And we said that even if a Palestinian militant rocket misfiring called the blast this week, that type of thing is inevitable while the bombardment continues. That while Israel has a right to self-defense, has a right to respond militarily, has a right to try to deal with the threat that Hamas poses, already too many innocent Gazans, too many children have been killed on top of the innocent Israelis that of course died in Hamas's 7th of October attacks, that the level of destruction was already far too high in Gaza. The risks of escalation already too grave and that it was time to pause the fighting to get humanitarian aid into Gaza and perhaps as part of that Israel Prime Minister Netanyahu could lay out his conditions for a continued ceasefire allow some sort of diplomatic effort to address Israel's concerns about Hamas that achieving Israel's objectives militarily you know as we've talked about would come at too high a cost and it's not really even clear that they are fully achievable in any case so let's stop the bombardment and the destruction and give 
diplomacy some time. Now, all that said, it's also true that diplomats in the region are going to have their work cut out in addressing Israel's concerns about Hamas. Right? I mean, many governments don't like Hamas, but it's not clear that they can or even that all of them want to work out a way to, to rein it in diplomatically. Oh, it's very unclear if Israel could get what it wants diplomatically. It, it, yeah, it's pretty unlikely. Um, but if not just Israel, but the region and the entire world has a choice between an uncertain and risky military option and an uncertain diplomatic option, then, well, pause the military option, which has already exacted an enormous toll from Gaza, and try the diplomatic option. At the very least, see if you can get the hostages home. Gaza's been under a blockade for 15 years more, and Hamas has been under a political blockade. So, you know, why don't you take some of the resources, both political and financial, that have been mobilized for this war, enormous, enormous resources, and see if you can use them instead to avert the war. There's no promise that it will work, but it's certainly worth trying. And um, one last one. Is uh, Israeli offensive in Gaza what Hamas wants? Is that what it's hoping for, a ground offensive? I mean, in that sense, even were the bombardment to stop, would Hamas actually stop firing rockets into Israel in an attempt to sort of provoke a ground invasion? Certainly, to a certain extent, uh, Israel is doing what Hamas wants. Hamas has been trying to provoke a ground invasion for many years because it feels like that's where its comparative advantage in fighting lies, right? Like um, in the last 13 days or whatever it's been, Gaza has sustained enormous damage. Um, you know, there's, you know, uh, Hamas and the other factions can shoot the missiles or shoot the rockets into Israel. But, you know, in the in the contest between his Israeli uh, missiles and, and Palestinian missiles or rockets, it's, it's not much of a competition. Uh, on the ground, it's a little bit different. And that's where Hamas feels like it's true advantage lies. And so, yes, I think it does want to see the ground invasion. It's important to remember, though, that just because Israel might be doing what Hamas wants to do, um, that doesn't mean that it's not doing what it wants to do. There have been voices in Israel for a long time saying that Hamas needs to be cleaned out. Um, obviously, many, many more of those voices right now. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the most difficult kind of situation that is when both sides want to fight. And I think both sides right now see an interest in fighting, and that's going to make diplomacy quite difficult. Myra, Rob, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks. So I'm now going to welcome on Tahani Mustafa, who's Crisis Group's Palestine expert. Tahani, welcome back on. Thank you. I want to talk a bit about sort of what's going on in the West Bank and the dangers of things escalating further there and in East Jerusalem. Do you want to start by talking a bit about what's happened there over the past couple of weeks since the 7th of October? Since the 7th of October, the West Bank and East Jerusalem have been under a total lockdown. Uh, we're talking about military-style closures across uh, different Palestinian localities in East Jerusalem. Different neighbourhoods are closed off from each other. Uh, anyone under the age of 50 can't access the old city. Uh, in the West Bank, a uh, similar situation. Towns, villages are completely closed off from each other with makeshift checkpoints. We've also seen an uptick in settler violence. Um, you know, Palestinians have been complaining about groups, you're talking about hundreds of settlers storming uh, their different localities. We're heavily armed with M16s, and the only thing they have to fight back are very primitive means like sticks and stones. 
just in the last, I mean, week and a half alone, we've seen 74 Palestinians so far in the West Bank killed in clashes with uh, the Israeli army and settlers. Uh, and we've seen 1,300 more injured. Uh, just today, actually, there was an uh, Israeli search and arrest operation in Tulkaram, Nur Shams camp, uh, where 11 Palestinians have so far been killed, uh, where the army went in, cordoned off the entire area, and that then erupted into clashes with armed militants. So there's this sort of sense right now that Israel is concentrating on Gaza and wants the West Bank to stay calm while it does that. Well, the reality on the ground is something quite different. Uh, you know, we've seen not only an uptick in settler violence, but also the government actively arming settlers, knowing that there is an uptick in, in violence. Uh, worse yet, the Israeli security forces have not scaled back their search and arrest operations, which before this conflict, before the 7th of October, was totaling something like 500 to 600 a week. And that was what was spurring on the latest phenomenon that we've seen over the last two years of, of a new generation of Palestinian uh, resistance fighters and armed groups. Uh, you know, that was the, the the very kind of essence of what had caused the entire phenomenon. And for a while, you know, after after we saw the raid in Janine back in July, we had seen things calm down. Uh, we've seen the PA try to slowly take control of the situation. But what's happening now in Gaza, coupled with the fact that you're seeing an uptick in settler violence, along with continued search and arrest operations, which we know always bring Palestinian fatalities, that's really done nothing to cool temperatures on the ground. Uh, if anything, it's starting to incite more public backlash. Today, we saw a brutal search and arrest operation. And before the 7th of October, that would have been newsworthy. But given that there is not only a, a restriction in terms of movement, uh, but also the fact that the Israelis have prevented journalists from going into these areas. Today, they prevented first responders and journalists from entering the Tulkaram refugee camp where the clashes were happening. Um, we're seeing a total news blockout. So journalists are unable to report what's going on in the West Bank. And how has the Palestinian Authority responded and how do people in the West Bank view this response? So that's been where, again, an, another front of, of danger here, which is the PA has been marginalised. We've seen Mahmoud Abbas make you know, the, the typical statements calling for a ceasefire, calling for international protection. We've seen him in Amman meeting with, with Western leaders, meeting with regional leaders. This has done nothing to cool temperatures on the ground at all. I mean, right now the PA is playing a waiting game where it's holding back, you know, trying to prevent rallies, trying to prevent demonstrations. We saw it shooting at demonstrators two days ago when the Al-Ahli hospital bombing had happened and people went into the streets. But other than that, it's trying to keep a very low profile. For many, they see that as the PA hoping that Israel comes out of this and hoping that Hamas effectively lose so that ultimately that means the PA remains stronger. Because right now, people have been calling for the downfall of the PA. They've been calling for the resignation of Mahmoud Abbas. And the main flashpoints, I mean, traditionally, the triggers have been the Holy Esplanade, the Al-Aqsa compound. There's been lots of violence, as you, as you talked about over the past year, in the north of the West Bank, so Nablus, Janine. I mean, those are the places to watch. So Israel has tried to prevent anyone under the age of 50 from entering the Al-Aqsa compound. But we have definitely seen clashes uh, break out in certain hotspots like uh, near checkpoints, close to set entrances of settlements. This has spread further out than just the north, which is where a lot of the initial violence was taking place over the last year. Today, we're seeing it everywhere. Ramallah, Hebron, Jericho, Bethlehem. And can I ask, what was the reaction among Palestinians in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, to the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October? Was it clear what Hamas had done, the murder of so many civilians? 
It was shock. The initial reaction was shock. Uh, it was shocking to Palestinians uh, because for the first time it was Israelis that bore the brunt of the initial blow. Uh, but many were also anticipating you know, a, a massive Israeli response. And that's exactly what has ended up transpiring, especially as Israel continues to ramp up its operations in Gaza. Um, so many are very fearful about the uncertainty. Um, no one's able to right now predict where things are going, how long this could take, how long this could play itself out. The uncertainty of that is, is terrifying for many Palestinians. There's also the concern that the kind of closures they're seeing today could become semi-permanent, as had happened in the Second Intifada. Are people angry at Hamas as well as at the Israelis? I don't think that's how people are really seeing it. I think to kind of reduce it to that is to take it out of its historical context. This has been the most violent year for Palestinians, in the West Bank especially. Gaza has been under blockade for the last 17 years. Uh, you know, life has been completely uninhabitable in the Strip. They barely had an infrastructure, they barely had an economy, and the West Bank was faring no different, especially over the last year, where the level of violence has really taken a toll, not just in terms of the security deterioration, but also economically. This has really severely impacted people's economic livelihoods. So I don't think that's how people are really looking at it. If anything, the 7th of October um, operation, as awful as it was in terms of the, the Israeli casualties it produced, for many Palestinians, what they saw was images of Gazans breaking down elements of a separation barrier that had imprisoned them for the last 17 years, um, being able to take con control of, of Israel's southern command, the administration that was part of that prison system. Obviously, People condemned the Israeli um, fatalities. No one was in support of that. If anything, people were in complete disbelief. But we also have to not take away what some of the other elements of that operation really represented for Palestinians. Tani, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. So we're now going to turn to my talk with Haiko Women Crisis Groups Syria, Iraq, Lebanon Director, based normally in Beirut. And I started by asking Heiko what had happened on the Israel-Lebanon border between Israeli security forces and the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah over the past couple of weeks. So on uh, October 8th, so like something like 24 hours uh, after the Hamas attack, Hezbollah uh, attacked an Israeli military post in a disputed area occupied by Israel, uh, a border area and uh, basically calling it a message of solidarity, a message of the Israelis, essentially saying, okay, we are here, right? You know? Now, this area is disputed. It's a place where um, whenever Hezbollah needs, feels the need to retaliate for something, they shoot rockets, and then the Israelis respond by, by shelling some areas in, in Lebanon, and usually nobody gets hurt, and everybody goes, go home. This is the Sheba farm, is that right? This is the Sheba Farms, exactly. So this is within the, this was very much within the established rules of the game. This was happened over and over again, and this really carries no escalation risk. And there were the next day infiltration attempts um, that Hezbollah explicitly disowned or, or said they had nothing to do with it. Um, that those were by Palestinian groups. That also has happened before, uh, but in response to these infiltration attempts, uh, the Israelis shelled uh, in a lot of areas, 
and uh, in the process killed several Hezbollah operatives. We don't know if that was intentionally or not. Uh, Hezbollah then retaliated for that, and there have been tit-for-tats ever since, and it has been going up slowly. It's daily almost. Uh, by now you have these exchanges of fire that are no longer restricted to this Sheba area, uh, that are happen in many places on the border, where Hezbollah is shooting uh, at Israeli military installations and soldiers within Israel. And they're shooting to kill, and they do kill. And Israel shoots back to kill, and they do kill. But until now, that is in the, within the range of like single-digit uh, casualties per day, and uh, it's contained. So you could say, I mean, on Sunday, the day after this uh, Hamas attack, we were on the, maybe on the first rung of the escalation ladder, and we are now on the second. And uh, Heiko, this sort of uneasy standoff between Israel and Hezbollah, these sort of exchanges of fire that you're talking about. I mean, these sort of arrangements have really been in place, what, since 2006, since the last big war between the two. And we'll come back in a moment to talk about that war. But there's a couple of ways things could escalate, right? One would be by accident and one would be deliberate. So could we talk first, I mean, what would a mistake or a miscalculation by one side look like? So first of all, I think both sides clearly do not, at this point, do not want to go on, on this uh, second or third rung. But what could happen is that um, Hezbollah, one of those uh, rockets, uh, these really anti-tank, guided anti-tank uh, projectiles, that Hezbollah shoots, um, it could uh, kill a lot of sol- Israeli soldiers in one, in one hit. You know, like, so rather than, hit- hitting t- uh, than killing two or three, it could kill 20. And then the Israelis would feel prompted to respond uh, much more forcefully. Uh, it could happen that, um, that one of those projectiles gets veers off course and hits something that is not, was not, wasn't supposed to hit, uh, civilian uh, casualties, uh, which is probably right now n- not so likely as the whole northern area, the whole northern border is supposed to be in lockdown. Uh, but also not impossible. It could be that if uh, the Israelis hit something that they may not intend to hit, they hit a building uh, that has like, we have 100 civilians dead or something like that, or, or even 20 or 50, which then forces Hezbollah to move beyond what they did now. Or not forces them, but prompts them, I would say. So this, this are, these are some of the scenarios of uh, unwanted escalation. And you could have those those Palestinian groups, you know, like... Uh, lobbing their rockets uh, towards populated areas, uh, and, and specifically the northwestern Galilee, like Shlomi and those areas. And just to be clear, Heiko, these are Palestinian militant groups in Lebanon, Hamas and others, often with ties to Hezbollah. So you have Hamas, you have uh, the Islamic Jihad in Lebanon. They have close relations. And it, it is rather implausible that these groups do this without Hezbollah at least looking the other way. Uh, and if one of those rockets happens to hit uh, like something that really hurts, you know, on the Israeli side, many casualties, uh, then I think the, the Israelis may uh, see it that way, that Hezbollah is, is, uh, is responsible and respond accordingly. And for now, Heiko, it seems that Hezbollah has no interest in an escalation with Israel. Israel certainly doesn't want to open another front, as we heard, with Hezbollah. But from Hezbollah's perspective, what might change that? So I think we need to be uh, aware that uh, there is not really something like a public opinion uh, that could, could compel Hezbollah to do this or that uh, against their own better judgment. 
the movement, the organization is, uh, is, is very much top-down in the sense that not there's one person who decides, but there's, a, there's collective decision-making and uh, their constituency uh, follows the lead of the leadership. Uh, they may ask for uh, retaliation, they may ask very loudly, but if the leadership tells them it's not the time, that's that. So now, if these things happen, Hezbollah could decide that it's a good move to turn up the heat a bit more. Or they could decide, if it looks like what the Israelis are doing is actually backfiring, if it turns public opinion, then they just could decide to, uh, you know, like uh, not interrupt the enemy while the enemy is making a mistake. But uh, what they've said from the beginning is that there are two red lines. And one is uh, like a massive uh, population displacement, I would think, out of Gaza. And the other one would be a real, like, complete destruction of, of Hamas as a capable political and military actor. So now, those are both, of course, red lines that leaves you quite a bit of wiggle room. And Heiko, let's say Hezbollah, presumably in some form of consultation with Tehran, with some green light from Iran, decides to escalate. What might that look like? I think the likely scenario would be that they turn up that heat gradually. An all-out attack, throwing at the Israelis everything they have, which would mean, first of all, it means, of course, all-out war. And after that, they have no more deterrent capacity. This is their nuclear option, you know, like unleash all these missiles that they have, uh, paralyze Israel's infrastructure, which many people think they can do. I think the more plausible strategy is to ramp up attacks uh, to a point where it's clear that they're serious and in reserve, you have just you keep that powder dry. And I think that makes more sense than imagining somebody flipping a switch and you have all-out war from one moment to the next. And as we heard up top, President Joe Biden clearly implied that the U.S. would respond if others attacked Israel while it's bombing Gaza. How much do you think that's a factor in Hezbollah's thinking? We've spoken about about these scenarios with them, and they would tell us, uh, look. The U.S. cannot afford a regional war. They want to prevent that. Then, then they bring up, you know, all these things, energy prices and, you know, e global economic recession that would follow and all of that. Uh, they would point out that the U.S. cannot uh, conduct two major wars at the same time you know, and, and, and arguments like that. So escalation in their mind is a means of basically pushing towards a situation where there is a, a high likelihood uh, of a regional conflict, uh, they expect that this would prompt, in particular, the U.S. to actually uh, uh, stop, you know, to stop the operations in Gaza and pull the Israelis back from that abyss. So the U.S. has deployed one, I think now two, carrier strike forces in the Mediterranean. How does that deter Hezbollah and Iran? I don't think these carrier groups are a very uh, useful and effective tool against an organization like Hezbollah. I mean, I'm not a military person, but if we try to think about it in terms of plausibility, you know, such a carrier group can uh, destroy other aircraft carriers, of course. It can destroy uh, airfields. Air it can destroy um, barracks. It, it can destroy uh, fortifications. It can destroy, um, like, big uh, amassments of troops. But Hezbollah obviously doesn't have aircraft carriers. It doesn't have airfields, it doesn't have troop amassment. The biggest threat it wields in the face of the Israelis is the, is the rocket arsenal that they have. Rockets and missiles, 150,000 supposedly, 
among them an unknown number of precision-guided missiles that can take out uh, an important part of Israel's infrastructure. And Hassan Nasrallah has said that. And um, so this is what you want to take out. And what the Israelis are saying, which I guess are the best place to know these things, is that uh, the majority of these missiles are actually somewhere hidden in residential areas, uh, in the residential areas in Shiite-majority parts of Lebanon, supposedly. Which means that if you want to erase that threat to Israel, you need extremely good intelligence to be able to hit, to hit these missile caches without hitting too many civilians. You will inevitably kill civilians. In the end, it's the same dilemma that the Israelis have in, in, in Gaza with Hamas. You will inevitably wind up uh, uh, killing huge amounts of civilians. Now, is the U.S. ready to do this? I think Hezbollah, uh, the Hezbollah people clearly expect that they're not. And um, Heiko, let's say that there is some sort of escalation then between Hezbollah and Israel, and the U.S. is involved in some way or another. Where else should we be watching? Iraq or Syria, uh, where you know the U.S. had forces, where Iran-backed militias have fired on, on U.S. forces before. Is it Iran itself? Where are the main dangers? Hezbollah and other and Iran have made a have made quite a bit of noise about this axis of resistance and how all these theaters will pull together. The reality is that Hezbollah is is the strongest element in this in this axis, short of Iran itself getting involved. So um, I think we can imagine uh, scenarios where there are, um, American troops, for instance, in in Iraq uh, are become a target. Um, in response to whatever happens here or uh, in Lebanon or uh, between Hezbollah and, and, and the U.S. But the real question is probably between, between the U.S. and Iran. Right? So, I mean, I mean, if this escalates in such a, a manner you know, and, and there is real damage being done on Israel, so will the U.S. then confine itself with trying to hit Hezbollah or will they basically go after, after the the center of gravity in this in this axis of resistance. You know, that's that's a question mark. There is a constituency in Washington for uh, being tough on Iran. Uh, I'm not sure there's, I think we're not so certain that there's a constituency for war on Iran. Heiko, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Hamas attacks and Israel's bombardment conflict more broadly on our website crisisgroup.org look out for that statement we put out earlier this week calling for a ceasefire there's also a piece on the lebanon israel border that we published earlier this week thanks to our producers kevin murphy heiko schaub and thanks of course to all of you our listeners please do get in touch podcasts at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions suggestions or concerns if you like the show say something nice about us leave us a positive rating or review and i hope you'll join us again next time